Well, if you would take your Bibles this morning and turn to Romans chapter 3. Romans chapter 3. Last week, we looked at the first eight verses of Romans chapter 3. We touched on a couple of the verses that followed that, kind of just to complete the whole passage there. But we're reminded that regardless of our standing, we'll all face the same judgment. And as we come into this next text of Scripture, we're reminded that all of us, without exception, have sinned. Um, Before I go any further, let me just tell you that there are people out there that feel like they've never sinned. Um, I met a pastor in Rochester, Indiana, uh, many years ago, who said, Mike, we were just having a conversation. We were meeting together for morning prayer, and there was about eight or or nine of us. And he looked at me and goes, my children aren't sinners. And there were about four of us that kind of just snickered and kind of like, I don't know about your kids, but my kids are sinners. (laughs) I mean, I don't even have to think twice about that. My kids are sinners. They do wrong. And uh, he says, no, my kids aren't sinners. And I was like, well, how do you come to that conclusion? He goes, well, they don't realize that they're sinners. I said, well, how old are your kids? He goes, well, they're like three and five. I said, you never told your kids not to do something? And they, and they pitched a fit? He goes, oh, yeah, they pitched a fit. I said, whether they realize it or not, they're sinners. He goes, no, they're not sinners. I don't know about you, but we're all sinners. And the reality is that none of us are born without that privilege of being holy. I mean, the, the, you know, the reality is we weren't born that way. We were born sinners. Um, and then also, then there's another group of people who think that they, well, they're born sinners, but then they no longer sin. The reality is that they've arrived, so to speak, and uh, they, don't, they don't do the things that everyone else does. They're not the sinners that everyone else are, so they've become better. <clears throat> Still sinner. And uh, I don't know about you, but... I'm just speaking from personal testimony. You can ask my family, but please don't. Uh, it only takes about a millisecond to sin, right? I mean, all you have to do is just like go that fast and tick me off an hour. I got a wrong thought, wrong mind. I want to respond in the, in the flesh rather than in the spirit. But the reality is we are all sinners. Paul then says, what then? In the text here, as we get into it in Romans chapter 3, beginning with verse 9, he says, what then? Are we better than they? He says, not at all. Remember all last week, as we've been building up in Romans chapter 1 and Romans chapter 2 and the first part of Romans chapter 3, he's talking about this big debate, so to speak, between the Jews and the Gentiles. The Jews remember this whole idea? Hey, we've been given the law. We were given the word first. We're God's chosen people. We know all the rules and regulations. We know all the do's and don'ts. We know all the celebrations. You just look to us. We are your example. We have it all set. And they thought because they were God's chosen people, and they are, but they thought because of all that, they're going to have some special escape from the judgment. Nope. God says you're all under judgment because you're all sinners. And just because you got the law first, or just because you know all the rules and regulations, the do's and don'ts, doesn't mean that you're going to get a bye on the day of judgment. God reminds them over and over that they are still sinners. And as we close in last week's message in chapter 3, verse 8, he looks on to say, And why not say, let us do evil that good may come, as we slanderously report, as some affirm that we say their condemn- condemnation is just. He says the justice that you will get, the judgment that you will get, is going to be just. Everyone's under sin. So as he says, what then? Are we better than they? No. You are better in the sense that you are God's chosen people, but you're not better in the sense that you're going to get away with what you've done and what you're not doing. So Paul is basically referring to the whole argument made by the Jewish people that somehow, some way, they were better than the Gentiles because they were given everything. Paul reminded them that they, 
And he's not just talking about they, the Jews, but also the Gentiles and himself and those that were with him were no better. Humorously, you might say that this is one of the first debates to overcome prejudice in the Bible. But Paul says over and over, you're no better than them and they're no better than you. And then Paul goes on to give them several realities for them to think through. As we look at these next verses, from verses 9 through 18, you see 15 realities that Paul points out. You say, good night, 15 realities, we're going to be here all day. No, they're they're one-liners, I promise I won't keep you until 2 o'clock. They're one-liners. But he gives them 15 realities, and they're really set into three different categories. They have to do with character, they have to do with speech, and they have to deal with conduct. And when Paul is, is through giving all these areas, he's basically telling them, look, I'm not saying all this to point the finger at you to say how bad you are. I'm giving you these realities so that you can understand you're not who you think you are. You're not as good as you think you are. You haven't arrived yet. There are still some things that you're dealing with. And so as we get into these verses, verses 9 through 12 deal with the character, verses 13 and 14 deal with speech, and verses 15 through 18 deal with their conduct. But he gives us 15 realities altogether, beginning with verse 9 and going through verse 18. So first of all, he deals with a degradation of character. You know, our character is who we really are, right? Character is what we say who we are when no one else is looking. It, character is, is what we know God, or what God knows us to be when we're all alone. And of course, that is a sinner. But the reality number one is this, and we find it in verse 9. It says, what then? Are we better than they? Not at all. For we have previously charged both Jews and Greeks that they are all under sin. So here's the first reality. All are under sin. According to verse 9. That's the first reality. And here's what it means. Sin had actually become meaningless to them. But say they had the law. They had all the rules, the regulations, the celebrations, everything that they knew they were supposed to do. But sin? No, not us. And he says, wait a minute. Jews and Gentiles alike under sin. Sin had actually become meaningless to many of them. Because they knew the law. And his law was just something you did. Question, we brought up the idea a couple weeks ago that obedience is doing what you're told to do with the right attitude. That means when you tell your children to go do a job that you have as a chore around the house and they do it grudgingly or with a bad attitude, do they obey? No. Because God is concerned with our attitude behind what He asks us to do. Over and over we see throughout Scripture when God asks someone to do something, He expects them to do it with the right attitude. Over and over, if they're not, there's consequences. So He's concerned about our attitude as well. And he basically comes to the conclusion that no one can say that they are without sin. And that's a reality that has not changed in all this time. In all the years since this passage was written, nothing has changed. We are still all under sin. Here's a second reality we find in verse 10. He says, as it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. Reality number two, there is none righteous. You know what the word righteous means? If you look at the character and what we do and how we live our lives, he says there is none righteous. God's word makes it very clear in so many places. He says that all your righteousnesses are as what? Filthy rags. That sounds a whole lot, a whole lot of exciting there, right? No. He says because the heart is deceitfully wicked above all things and desperately wicked. Who can even know it? So if we think that you have some righteousness, no, you don't. Over and over he reminds us that there is none righteous. In other words, what he says is, There is not an innate desire within us apart from Christ to do what's right. I don't know about you, but I never had to teach any of my children how to do what's wrong. Hey, Joey, if you want to really take your sister off, go pull her hair and then sucker punch her in the gut. 
I never had to teach my kids how to do that. Not about your, your, your kids probably never did those things, but my kids are sinners. I didn't have to teach them to do wrong. It comes all natural. And the reality is, so does it with your kids and your, your own lives. The reality is, there's none righteous. In our heart, we are deceitfully wicked. John chapter 8, verses 43 and 44 says, You do what is natural for you to do because you are of your father, the devil. And if you want, don't want to do the works of your father, the devil, you have to be born again to do the works of the father. God, the father. So we do what comes natural, and that is sin. And the reality is, he says, there is none righteous. In and of yourselves, you are not born righteous. It is something that we have to work towards with God's help to accomplish. Number three, reality. According to verse 11, he says, there is none who understands. Uh, This is an idea behind this in the Greek language is that there is not a natural apprehension of the awareness of God and what God has done. He says, according to Romans chapter 1, verse 20 and 21, he says, all man is without excuse. And someone asked me after a sermon the other day, after I preached that message, he said, you mean the person in the deepest, darkest part of Africa who's never heard of God is still accountable to God? Absolutely yes. I didn't make the rules. I didn't make that up. In Romans 20, he says, by the very creation that is around us, he says, when you look at this, this did not happen by accident. You see the grandeur of space. You see the grandeur of the mountains. You see the grandeur of the lakes and the oceans. You say, this did not happen by accident. He says they are without excuse because when you see it, you know that there's a creator. So yes, even the person in the deepest, darkest jungle of Africa is without excuse. The reality is, no one in and of themselves naturally says, wow, I just want to trust God. I want to know all all that there is about Him. So he says there's no one that understands. There's no natural apprehension or awareness. They shunned it. They pushed it down. They were more interested in the law, more interested in the rules, more interested in the regulations, the celebrations, the do's and the do nots. They were not interested in a relationship. Reality number four, and once again, this still has to do with the character. From the same verse, verse 11, it says, There's none who seeks after God. In other words, it has to do with a natural desire to seek for God. I don't know about you, but I did not have a natural desire. I heard a message, I heard a story when I was a child, and I had an opportunity to respond to that. And of course, that would be the same for many of us in this room. We heard a message, we heard a story, we heard some preaching, we heard somebody talk. And the reality is the Holy Spirit begins to take what has been said, the seed that's been planted, and begins to water and cultivate in your soul, and you have an opportunity to respond to it. He says these, these people, they have no natural seeking after God. No natural desire to worship Him. Reality number five. You see, I told you they're not all long. They're going to be one-liners. They're going to keep you here until 2 o'clock. You can say thank you later. Um, number five, <laughs> verse 12. It says, they have all turned aside. Well, what does that mean? They turned. The idea behind the word turn there is that there is a deliberateness in their turning. They chose. They purposefully chose to turn. Now remember the whole concept of all this. He's dealing with the Jews who want to debate that they're better than the Gentiles, right? He says, we have the law, we have the rules, we know that all, everything that's entailed in, in being a Jewish person. And he says, wait a minute. You think you know, but you turned aside. Once again, we're talking about relationship. How important is relationship in these matters? We're going to come back to that a little bit later. So there's a deliberate turning away from God. 
Reality number six, also in verse 12, says they have together become unprofitable. Well, here's the idea. We all know what the word unprofitable means. The idea behind profitable is that there's no value in going forward in this. They're not seeking to do what's right. So when we think of something that is unprofitable, we think of something that does not serve any good purpose. It's useless. If we're going to think of financial investment, would you throw $100 into something that has not proven itself to be successful? No. You wouldn't want to throw 20 cents into it, let alone $200. If something's not proven to be successful, you would not invest in it. That's the idea behind unprofitable here. It says they have become unprofitable. They've become useless. There's no value in it. But I know the law. But I know the rules. But I know the regulations. And he says, doesn't matter. It does not matter. Knowledge alone, we learned a couple weeks ago, is not enough. There are a lot of people says, that, that know everything. There are people who can quote the Scripture up and down, inside and out. They memorize all kinds of verses. They do all kinds of things for God. And he says, depart from me, for I never knew you. Knowledge is never enough. And once again, he's just reiterating all these things that they have become unprofitable. Reality number seven, also from the end of verse 12, says there is none who does good, no, not one. The ancients used this word to describe milk that's gone sour. This whole idea of unrighteous that doesn't seek good, the idea here is that there is milk that has soured. Anybody ever had sour milk before? Maybe on accident? It's been in the fridge a little bit longer than what you thought it was. And I'm, I'm telling you, and not like, like a bowl of fruity pebbles, right? <laughs> and you go pour milk, and it's like, oh man, a clump just came out on it. <laughs> Nasty! Some of you have done that. That's the idea here. It's, it's the picture of milk gone sour in the Greek language here. It's a word picture. This is the ancients described it, not good. It's not good good. He says, your righteousness, it's non-existent. It's not there. You think it's there, but it's not. And the word together, look at that in the middle of the verse. They have together become unprofitable. The whole idea behind verse 12 is that they did this together. You as a people. Now once again, not just pointing the finger at the Jewish people, but also to the Gentiles. He said, all of us we're unprofitable in and of our, ourselves. Apart from God, apart from relationship, we are useless. You ever met that person who just thinks they're indispensable to mankind? I mean, you just can't function unless you know me. No. You think you're that person, but you're not. God is important. Or God, God is concerned that, about their attitude as well. So all these things have to do with the degradation of their character. He is trying to point out to them, you're not as good as you think you are. But then he goes into the degradation of speech in verses 13 and 14. Look at this. Verse 13, we see reality number 8. It says, their throat is an open tomb. Just, once again, not reading more into Scripture than what is there, but what is a tomb used for? It's used to bury what? Dead? Dead people! Is the tomb something positive? Not usually. It's used that they're associated with sorrow with death, something that you don't appreciate. He said, your throat is an open tomb. It really refers to their speech and, their, and what was coming out of them. 
the pride, the arrogance. Their inwards were corrupt and offensive. Reality number nine, according to verse 13, with their tongues they have practiced deceit. Their tongues, they practice deceit. They deceive people. People who deceive people are liars. Here's the thing. A half-truth is a whole lie. I mean, you should have seen this fish I caught. It was really... Right. That's more the truth. This is the exaggeration or the lie. You see, so often we think of ourselves as better than we are and we think that God doesn't care about a little fib. I mean, He doesn't care about a little exaggeration. He doesn't care about this or that. Okay, then why did He point it out? That deceitfulness had become their habit. Their mouth, they deceive. Number 10, reality. Verse 13 says that the poison of asp is under their lips. Wow. So this degradation of speech, their throat, their mouth, their lips, full of cursing and bitterness. Verse 14. Total irreverence before God and malignity before God, before mankind. So he's almost pointing out everything that they, 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 they were accustomed to looking at. And he's saying there's issues with it. But then there's one more area of degradation that was in their conduct in verses 15 through 18. Four more realities. Before we get into this last section, there's a picture here. When you look at these last four realities that he points out to them, once again in the Greek language, there is a word picture here that describes what is taking place. How many of you have ever seen the aftermath of a tornado? You ever seen that? I can remember as a, I think I was in junior high, growing up in Minnesota, we had often, many times, that, uh, you know, tornadoes would come through, and I can remember on one specific occasion that we were all on the front porch, and my dad had his, you know, remember the old monster VHS camcorders? And, you know, like, look at a TV crew on one hand. He's got this little thing going, and he's, like, videotaping the skyline. And my mom was freaking out, saying, get inside, David, get inside, get inside. You know, dad's like, Oh, it's three miles away. Don't worry about it. He's watching the whole skyline as trees were getting torn up and ripped up and thrown up into the sky. He's recording it. But then the next day, you could drive by where the tornado went through. Everything's uprooted. Buildings are demolished. You see it on the news. That's the picture that he says is the result of who they thought they were that they were not. The conduct who we really are, how we conduct our lives from the time we get up to the time we go to bed. And here's the reality of their conduct. Reality number 12 in verse 15. It says their feet are swift to shed blood. I was always taught in Bible college that there are certain things you don't have to read into Scripture because they just speak for themselves. This is one of them. Their feet are swift to shed blood. What does that mean? It means exactly what it says. Their feet were swift to shed blood. They were not as holy and righteous as they thought they were. Reality number 13. We find this in the next verse. Destruction and misery are in their ways. Destruction and misery. Another reality. When you think about it, 
How often have you, have you met somebody who is just full of destruction and misery? I've said over the years that I'm not a prophet, I'm not a judge, I'm not God, I'm not the Holy Spirit. But there are certain people that you can look at and you say, man, they're miserable. They've made poor choices. They've had some severe consequences. Things are really, really rough. And it shows all over their face. That's the picture here. Destruction and misery are in their way. That's why, because they just keep making poor choices. And can I just say this? Over the last couple of weeks, I've reminded at least 10 people of Isaiah 26.3. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee because he trusts in thee. If you don't worry, frustration, anxiousness, doubt, Isaiah 26.3 answers the questions of all those things. Thou wilt give him perfect peace, not a semblance of peace, not occasional peace, the world's seeking peace in a lot of different ways, but God says, if you just keep your mind on me and trust me, I'll give you peace. But that was not the case with these Jewish folks. In fact, number reality 14, verse 17 says, and the way of peace they have not known. That's another reality. He says, you don't even have peace. It's a question. As you're looking at all these things, does this look like someone who has a relationship with Jesus Christ? No. Not at all. In fact, the last reality, number 15, is found in verse 18. He says, there is no fear of God before their eyes. You know what that means. They didn't fear God. You will continue to live the life you want if there's no fear of repercussion of how you live it. You can do whatever you want. There's no repercussion. It doesn't matter. You can do whatever you want. That's what happens when there's no fear of God. And if there's no fear of God, there's no fear of man. I can do whatever I want. No repercussion in my mind. Here's the thing. Murray makes a comment. He says, he makes notes that throughout all these verses, the parts of the body mentioned, the throat, the tongue, lips, mouth, feet, eyes, he comes to this conclusion. Every aspect of man is sinful and depraved. Every one of the things that God has given you, your hands, the feet, the eyes, the ears, the mouth, the nose, everything, it can be used for an instrument of glory to God or it can be used as an instrument of righteousness to feed the flesh. And the reality is this. Look at verse 19 and 20 as he closes here. He says, Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law that every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty before God. So he says, listen, the reality of all this is, we've been talking about this for two, three weeks now. He says, all of you think that you have the law. You have the word. You have all the rules, the regulations, the do's, the don'ts, the celebrations, everything. You know everything that there is to know. But the reality is, when you look at your character, when we look at your speech, and we look at your conduct, it does not point to somebody who has a relationship with Jesus Christ. In other words, this whole law thing that you think that you're shadowed under, it's not real. And the reality is, is that you're still a sinner. And you're still going to die and go to hell apart from faith in Jesus Christ. He says every aspect of mankind is sinful and depraved. He wasn't saying, look at how bad you are. He's saying, I want you to realize you're not as good as you think you are. None of us are. That's why he says in verse 19, Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law that every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty before God. He said the law was given to you. And what does it say in, in Galatians chapter 3? 
He says the law was given as a schoolmaster to bring you to grace. And if you break the, the law in any one point, you might as well be guilty of all of it because it only takes one offense to make you a sinner. And you come to the realization that you are not as good as you think you are. We are all under sin. And let's just think just for a hypothetical what if. What if I did have these 10 laws or these 20 laws or these 200 laws and I was able to keep them perfectly? I mean, I did not make one offense. I did not break them in any one point. I mean, I kept them 100% perfect. What, what then? Well, verse 20 answers that. It says, Therefore, by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. He says, even if you could keep every aspect of it. And this has been the debate that he's trying to deal with with the Jews. He says, you're not as good as you think you are. And even if you did think that you could be good enough. Even if you did think that you could keep every part of the law. By no deeds of the law. That's the work of the law. By applying it, there's no way possible for you to be justified. You can't do it. What does Ephesians 2, 8, 9 remind us of? For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. You mean even if I keep every part of the law? No. That would be what you can do, apart from what God already did. You cannot do this. So even if you think you could be good enough, you can't. That's verse 20. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. It says, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. He says, I am simply pointing out to all of us as people... Yes, I'm pointing out to you as Jewish people, but I'm also referring to the Gentiles. I'm referring to myself. Every one of us, if we're honest with ourselves, even if we thought we could be good enough, if we could keep the entire law, it's not good enough. It's not enough. And all this does is prove that when you break any part of the law, man, it just brings about the fact that I'm a sinner. And I can't be good enough. So it's a reminder that all of us, regardless of our standing, have to come to the same conclusion. If I want to spend eternity in heaven with my Savior, if I want to really have a relationship with Him, I have to repent of my sins and trust in Jesus Christ to do what He can do and not what I can do. Because what I can do is never going to be enough. So Paul, in this whole picture here leading up to this, he said, I'm not trying to pick on you. I'm not trying to point you out. I'm not trying to make you feel bad. I'm just trying to help you understand. Just because you're a Jewish person doesn't exempt you from the judgment that's going to come. We're all under sin. And that's for me as well, he says. And it's for all the Gentiles. It's for all of us. And I'm so thankful as I start to think about Romans chapter 3. Like I said in the beginning, a lot of us are, are really familiar with the later parts of Revel, or Romans chapter 3. All of sin, I'm sure, of the glory of God and the whole plan of salvation and what He does in giving us the gospel. But He points out the obvious so that we can come to the realization that we need Jesus. None of us can approach the throne of God apart from Jesus. I said this a few weeks ago. Bottom line is, I've heard so many people say, well, we're all going to heaven. We're all just getting there different ways. No, we're not. God's word is clear. There is one way, one name under heaven given amongst men whereby we must be saved in the name of Jesus. That's it. There's not a billion different ways to get there. There's one. 
He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes unto the Father but by me. He says, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of heaven. Yes, it is exclusive. Yes. But it's in childlike faith that we put our trust in him and have a relationship with him. Right? He says, the reality is we're all sinners. None of us can make it there apart from God and his finished work. But the reality is he made a way. Isn't that awesome? He made a way. So it's not just, well, you're never going to be good enough. So sorry. (laughs) See ya. No, you're never going to be good enough on your own. But my grace is sufficient. My mercy is for you. I loved you so much I sent my son to die on a cross for you. And the reality is he made a way. So it's a reminder to every one of us. And I think sometimes we kind of put the fact that, well, my parents were believers. I grew up in church my entire life. We're kind of in a different sense of being just like the Jewish folks here. Well, I know this. I know that. Knowledge is never going to be enough. We saw that a few weeks ago, earlier, chapter 1. Just because you know some stuff is not going to get you into heaven. It's in a relationship. And I would challenge you this morning. Do you have a relationship with Jesus Christ? Not what you know, not what you've done, not what you're doing. But do you have a relationship with Jesus Christ? Because that's what he's pointing out the necessity of. You cannot be good enough in and of yourself. doesn't matter how many times you've read the Bible through. doesn't matter how much you've given to the church. doesn't matter what kind of work you're involved with in charity and helping the poor. It does not matter. What matters is, do you know Jesus? Is he your Savior? That's what's important. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you so much for your word. And Lord, it seems almost overkill how much Paul points out the distinctions of their own life. Because sometimes, the, Lord, I think like, like the Jewish people, we can come blind to who we really are. We think we're better than we are. We think that we know more than we do. We think that because we do this, we gain merit or whatever, Lord. But I pray that we would not fall into this trap of somehow assuming that we're going to make it to heaven apart from a life and a relationship with you, Lord. I pray that you would work in our hearts, draw us closer to you. Just pray for a moment as every head's bowed and every eye's closed. Just every week we have an opportunity to respond to what God's word says. And as we're here this morning, just a simple question. Do you know Jesus? Do you have a relationship with him? Say, Pastor, I'm not really sure. I don't really know what that looks like. Uh, I'd love nothing more than to take some time and talk to you about that. But if you're concerned about it, you say, well, if I were to die today, I don't know that I would spend eternity in heaven. I mean, I think I'm a good person, or maybe I went to church, or maybe I grew up in in a home that went to church or taught, taught us how to be Christians, but... That's not the question. The question is, do you know Jesus? Do you have a relationship with him? It's not in what you know. It's not in what you've done. It's not in what you're doing. It's in a relationship. You say, Pastor, I'm not really sure if I have that, but I'm concerned. Would you pray for me? Just lift up your hand. I won't embarrass you. I'll not call you up. Our heads are bowed. Eyes are closed. You say, Pastor, pray for me. I'm concerned. Anyone like that this morning? And the second question then is this. What is our attitude? All these things they knew, but their attitude was wrong. In all these areas, their conduct, their speech, their character, 
They knew the law, but their attitude was wrong. And sometimes we think because we go to church, because we do these things, that we're better than everyone outside these walls. No, you're not. We have hope. We can have peace. We can have certainty. But we're all sinners in need of a Savior. So the question then is, how about your pride? Is your attitude right before God? Say, Pastor, if I'm honest, there's some things I need to deal with this morning. Some things that need to change. Would you pray for me on like that this morning? Yes. Anyone else? Yes. Yep. We need to be careful that we don't become like the Jewish people and that we know these things or we've done these things or we have these things and because of it think that we're better. That's nothing more than spiritual pride. We need to guard against that. Lord God, would you work in our hearts. Lord, be with each one who's raised their hand their heart towards you this morning. Lord, help us to be doers of the word and not hearers only. Lest we deceive ourselves, according to James 1. But Lord, may we have a heart right, a right heart attitude towards you in these things. Lord God, we thank you for salvation. We thank you for the hope of heaven that you give to us through a relationship with you. And Lord, for each and every one of us, Lord, may daily we find our peace in our souls in walking with you and obeying you and living for you. May we throw aside pride and arrogance to truly know you and to know you better. And we pray these things for all of us, Lord, in Jesus' name.